what I hope they will learn from my research is that the failures begin in the C-suite. The tone at the top is paramount. If you put enough pressure on your employees, they will do things that they are unhappy about. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, I want to pause and I just want to welcome you into the Kelly family. And I want to let you know that this resource is specifically designed for you. So if you are an organizational leader, maybe you're looking to get into more of a management or leadership role, or you want to just grow as a person, and you might be wrestling with some topics, you might not know what some of those next steps are, we would love to hear from you. Or if you just know of an individual who would make a great guest for our show, maybe it's someone you've been wanting to hear their thought on a specific topic, or they just have an idea that could help shape the business world an organization's culture, or how we just look at business generally, send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I.edu. Again, R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I.edu. Well, this week, we are going to talk really about a very interesting um, conversation that I like. I like talking about things that relate with ethics, ethical decision-making, but this is going to be a little different. We're not going to come at this simply from, you know, what we should and shouldn't do. We have an incredible individual here today, a professor of accounting for the Kelly School of Business uh, here in Bloomington, Daniel Banesh, who going to explore and take us through his research of this model he's created, which ultimately I found out, you know, became what helped determine Enron's fall before it even happened. And for those who are not familiar, um, you know, with Enron, Enron was a major company uh, that seemed to get themselves in a little trouble, started to cook the books. And um, as we'll kind of explore a little bit as to how some of that fall happened, uh, this was predicting through mathematical and science, not just, you know, philosophically and, and, and character driven, but by actual numbers and by the science behind it was able to predict that fall. So Daniel, first off, welcome to the ROI podcast and forgive me, you know, if I uh, may have uh, dumbed down your research uh, too too much. Absolutely not. Good morning, Matt. Um, A pleasure to be here with you. Um, Yes, uh, so I have developed a a model called the M-score and initially I intended that to be the manipulation score. Um, and what I did to, is to profile firms that had been caught committing some sort of fraud and um, compared them to any other firms in the industry over the same time period. So um, a lot of analysis went into it. I learned a lot from people working on the street, from people who'd gone before me, And what I did is I put together um, a model containing eight variables that looked at disequilibria that could have been caused by a change in the firm's policy, uh, or policies rather, uh, or um, by some sort of manipulated 
uh, accounting uh, elements. Like, for example, uh, one idea I had is if you record revenues that are you are uncertain to collect, or if they are fictitious, you're not going to collect them. So I figured there would be some accumulation in your uh, accounts receivable because fictitious clients don't really pay very well. Sure. Um, then I looked at, at things like incentives. Uh, incentives were, well, if we have a deterioration in our profit margins, uh, then maybe we have more incentives um, to put some cosmetic elements in our numbers. And the idea there was um, perhaps this would allow us to get a bank loan on better terms and, and everything is temporary, right? Uh, we are not doing this for the long run. Uh, we, are, uh, we are thinking that if we pass this small crisis, things will rebalance themselves, reestablish themselves. So we are not down a slippery slope. Well, the ones that got caught did go down a slippery slope. Eventually, they run out of cash. They run out of the ability to get more resources. And so that's what my model does. And I, I think uh, if there is any intelligence there, it has been in creating variables that would capture these effects. Um, and so uh, I had a, a tough time getting these published uh, because uh, they thought it was uh, too close to the real world, I think. And in the end, that's what it turned out to be. Um, and you're right. Uh, the, the, the first time uh, that Enron was uh, brought to the attention of people, it was by um, a group of MBA students um, at Cornell. Uh, someone had taught my model at Cornell, a good colleague of mine, and they had suggested that Enron was probably a firm to avoid. In their investing relating to uh, their fund, uh, a fund run by students as part of classes. So uh, that's how the model became popularized. So that, and that's, uh, I think I understand it, as I understand it, it there is a, an exhibit in some finance museum in New York uh, that talks about that student project. Of course, uh, Anderson got winds of this, and they uh, tried, contracted me to develop a model for them, which I did. And I never uh, could testify in Congress or anything because I had a non-disclosure agreement with them. So Anderson issued alerts to the Houston office uh, about Enron twice before the, the debacle. And I guess uh, that's the claim to fame on the model. So let's go back, you know, and talk about for maybe those, uh, you know, that may not be so familiar with Enron, 
um, you know, we're kind of getting to that point where it just seems like it was yesterday. You know, I remember seeing news stories. I remember seeing Enron all over every news and, you know, FBI agents coming out in and out with these boxes. I mean, there's so many images that stick into my mind, yet there's a generation coming out that may have, it might be you know, forgotten um, or not even learned uh, up to this point. So, you know, walk through uh, from your understanding of how Enron even began to hit this decline a little bit. I know you said uh, before we started recording, um, you know, that your your model looks at kind of just the what happens when people get themselves in the corner. You know, what happens when decisions, you know, you see the ramifications of poor ethical decisions, not predicting what they've done, but you just see that. So from that perspective, you know, what happened or talk about the buildup to Enron's ultimate decline? So uh, Enron is is an unusual case um, to the extent that um, usually people start engaging into these manipulative uh, um, procedures, I guess, um, when they, they, they're, they're cornered, they have no choice. I, I don't think that was the case for Enron. I think uh, Enron essentially was an energy trading company that represented itself as a producer of energy, which it was not. And a lot of uh, it was driven by greed, Greed and a ton at the top that enabled these sorts of things. So, uh, n- not the usual run-of-the-mill uh, uh, cases that I have encountered in my research. Okay. So, in fact, my model was estimated way before Enron happened. Uh, and so, the validity of the model is the fact that Enron's being flagged was completely out of sample. I think what's interesting about your research and your model is, like you like you pointed out, Enron is an anomaly. You know, they were kind of um, from. It seemed like on the from the onset, you know, intentions were not pure, even from you know the founding or, or however far back you want to go. Intentions just weren't seen to be pure. But what a lot of organizations face, as I'm sure your model brings up is they start with the best intentions. Organizations are, um, you know, doing great. They get used to succeeding, yet whether it's outside forces, being economic downturns, maybe a client's not, a major client that's been propping up their business model is not wanting to sign or they have other ambitions or, or internal forces. Maybe, you know, you're, company is not thriving and the culture is horrible. People are leaving and you're just, you're trying to hedge your bets, or you're trying to stop the bleeding. It's in those moments where peop, great people make really poor decisions, and not without judging character or without judging, you know, the in, full intentions behind it, because we don't understand all that they're facing. Your model does kind of see how some of those decisions kind of ripple through. So, talk about, you know, you, you briefly mentioned some of the variables. What were the things you were looking at in your research? What surprised you, or what started to stick out that that kind of gave you some indications of yes, I need to make sure these variables are a part of this ultimate model? How did you get to those points? So I'm going to answer your question by taking a little bit of a step back here. Um, 
if you were a firm, if you were running a firm that had uh, multiple divisions, um, multiple separate activities, um, and there's a responsibility of, of different sets of employees, um, I think it would be a good idea to use a screening model such as mine to assess the integrity of their system. And so essentially what my model does, the details of what my model does, is it looks at revenues in a firm that's important, right? It looks at the tendency to capitalize expenses. In other words, the tendency to avoid putting expenses where they belong as a reduction of revenues. Um, um, look at um, trends in, um, in profitability. Look at sales growth. Um, look at how much leverage is changing, how much borrowing. So look at all these elements um, to try to get a picture for whether there is something going on at a particular division or a particular operation that may be foreign for a multinational company. So this is a screening tool with which one can um, essentially make an assessment of something that could be happening. doesn't mean there is fraud. This is a screen, right? Uh, so, but it warrants investigation. And the details of the models, each variable points you to a different thing. So when I created the model, what I tried to do was think of the principal financial statements, think of the balance sheet, think of the income statement, statement of cash flows, and how they were interrelated. And I exploited that interrelation to find things that seemed odd, unusual relative to prior years. Uh, so how is this useful? Well, it is useful because it can be uh, very easily used as a screening device, even within a company. Okay. Does that, will that lead to uh, ethical decisions? Well, no, but it might lead to better oversight. And so, more so, when you know a division is struggling, so suppose there are operations in a, a different, a foreign country, um, which has trouble uh, reaching its quotas, it has trouble producing uh, the revenues, the cash, etc., etc. They have greater incentives. This is so when there are greater incentives. Um, there is a higher likelihood of uh, manipulation. So these things go hand in hand, if you like. I want to explore something you talked about. You said, you know, when you take financial statements, your model compares them and kind of almost holds them accountable to each other of, you know, for anyone that's taken uh, the basic, you know, accounting classes, you have your balance sheet, sure. you have your cash flow statement, and, you know, they're separate, but they're supposed to kind of run in tandem. And like you said, there's times where, uh, it's easy to, it's easy potentially to manipulate some of those numbers to make things appear better, worse for whatever your reasoning is. 
um, you know, on those documents. And so, you know, and, and not, and, and I want to kind of, I'm always the kind of person that I, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt until proven. I don't try to just initially put, oh, they're coming from a malice. Okay. Maybe people benefit the doubt until proven otherwise. So maybe, you know, for, for organizational leaders, uh, that find themselves, um, you know, making, want to make sure maybe they learn tactics and they're not sure why, why an organization has made their books this way or why they do cash flows and balancing this way. But it's all they know because that's all they've learned because someone's, you know, said it's always been done this way. I have never questioned it. So I'm just doing it. What are some of those, um, tactics or maybe mistakes that you were saying, you said, you know, when the, when you kind of put the two together and you merge a cash flow and a balance sheet, you find those discrepancies. What are some of those common discrepancies you find that people can take a step back and go, man, am I doing this? And should, should this be something I kind of self, um, self-correct or make sure I want to do things the right way? So think of profits or net income. This is the bottom line in an income statement that measures from an accounting standpoint, performance during a period. Uh, this is what we call accrual-based profit. Accounting is an, an accrual-based system. Um, so in parallel, um, so in an accrual-based system, to take a step back on, uh, in an accrual-based system, uh, a revenue is recognized when you've performed your obligations, and you've earned it, whether you've collected it or not. In the cash basis system, a revenue is only recognized when collected, whether you have done the work or not. So if you get paid in advance, it doesn't matter. The cash system recognizes the cash received as revenue. Uh, it doesn't matter if you finish your work last year and you only get paid this year. Uh, you will only recognize under the cash basis when you collect. So uh, cash flow from operations is the most important number in the statement of cash flows. This is what tells you if you're generating any cash profit from operations. Um, so here we have a cash basis profit and net income. So comparing those two numbers, analysts have quickly gotten suspicious when net income was positive and increasing, and in parallel, you found negative cash flow from operations. In other words, the firm was reporting an accounting profit, and on the other hand, it was burning cash. Okay, so my model explodes that. Uh, and this is not something I came up with. Uh, analysts have been looking at this for decades before, okay? So what I did is I did a very good reading of the professional literature and analyst uh, reports, um, drew information from there and added a few things, of course. Um, so those are the things that you look at that can create imbalances. Um, another thing that is probably easy to, to look at is um, when depreciation is an expense that is based on estimates. I looked at whether the depreciation rate decreased from one year to the next. 
my idea was if you're struggling and need a little boost to your income, well, decreasing the, de the rate at which you depreciate your long-lived assets would be a good idea, and you could do that simply by extending their useful lives. Um, making a plausible argument to your readers and auditors that the trucks were going to last 20 years, not eight. And then all of a sudden, you reduce depreciation expense, and, and that's captured in the model. Uh, um, essentially, things of, of that sort. Um, so, you know, when you, when you start looking at to the future, you know, with your model, I mean, you, you've shown and been able to see, you know, we've gotten to some really um, in the weeds accounting, you know, for especially for people uh, maybe who have never taken an accounting course. Um, you know, when you talk about appreciation and assets and, and financials and cash flows, um, you know, uh, it, it's a pretty deep, can be a very deep dive, um, you know, which is why there's a whole industry of just nothing but accountants to help kind of sift through that because it can be very tricky. Sure. Um, but when you look at the future, and kind of the future of um, organizational operations, what have you? What are you hoping your model accomplishes? Or, or for people listening to this episode who are leaders of organizations, maybe they're wanting to either start a company, maybe be a head of a company, or run a division within a company. You know, what are you hoping that this model um, kind of helps? future leaders avoid or keep an eye on to make sure that not only are they doing what's right, but they're making sure that they're, they're grounded in reality and in truth of what's really happening um, within your organization from a financial perspective. Uh, okay. So I think first and foremost, I would like uh, organizational leaders to use more of these analytical tools that are available freely to them. Uh, the explanations are fairly simple. Uh, calculators exist not only for my model, but for several other models. Um, for bankruptcy and default prediction models. And my hope is that they apply these things as a matter of course to their operations to internally check what's going on. Now, uh, this is what I think they I can hope that they will do mechanically. What I also hope is that they will not never use any of these prediction <laughs> models to bypass the system. Uh, what I hope they will learn from my research is that the failures begin in the C-suite. The tone at the top is paramount. If you put enough pressure on your employees, they will do things that they are unhappy about. Um, these are things to be avoided in my mind, uh, but you know, no one controls circumstances. Um, that's what, how I would hope the model be used. I, it's already used by investors um, since I started this. Uh, process, there's been at least 10 models published. Um, uh, many of the models have done better at, at uh, detecting uh, fraud, uh, but they've, they've done so, so at a much, much higher uh, rate of 
errors. Um, stated alternatively, they're more successful at identifying frauds that are caught, and these represent a very small, by less than 1% of the population. Uh, but then they end up concluding that 40% of every other firm is a fraud, and they're not. Uh, this is like, suppose I, I went to the FDA and I said, hey, I got a really good test to screen for some form of rare cancer. Okay? And if I apply it, and the people who truly have this in an early stage, I can extend their lives by five years uh, because we will have caught it. The problem is I might have to... Uh, test 150 million Americans because my error rate is 40%. That's the cost. Mm. So, um, so yeah, you save, uh, you extend the life of a million people by five years at a cost of overwhelming the whole health system with MRIs and biopsies uh, for 150 million people. That's some of the things I've seen uh, uh, with recent work. With your model, as we begin to wrap up, yeah. and you kind of reflect back on all the years of research you put into this, um, you know, you've been exploring literature, you've been exploring trends. What surprised you the most? Like, what were you most, uh, were there any moments, and if there were, you know, talk about the moments where you kind of, sat back in your chair, maybe took your glasses off, and you're just like, huh, I did not see that. You know, what surprised you along this journey? So, WorldCom, you heard of WorldCom. It's often mentioned in the same sentence as Enron. Uh, WorldCom is something I, I miss completely. Um, and why? It's very simple. So, what WorldCom did is it rented um, essentially time on other providers' lines. But instead of treating this as an expense of earning the revenue they were earning from their clients, they treat this, this as a long-lived asset. Okay. I, I, it, this was, uh, it didn't seem possible for me um, to think of an expense as just simply an investment, which it is not. So um, that is something my model completely fails at. Um, and Wellcome was really smart this way because auditors don't usually check long-lived assets. Long-lived assets are plants and uh, equipment, so these things, you buy their large quantity items, you see an invoice, and that's the end of it. Um, anyone who's outside the firm doesn't really have the expertise, uh, the engineering expertise to know what it is that's being purchased. There's an invoice, there's an amount, and that's good enough. So uh, that surprised me a ton. Daniel, thank you so much. We really appreciate you know your time, your wisdom for taking us into uh, your model. Again, Daniel Banesh, Professor of Accounting here at the Kelly School of Business. Just thank you again for being our guest. Thank you, Matt.
This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.